Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Welcome to Fire Service Radio. Uh, today, I'm your sole lecturer, I guess, on um, uh, legal updates. Um, all the other attorneys are off doing attorney-like things. I think one's on vacation and one's teaching classes and one's probably actually practicing law. But ordinarily, um, there's Kurt Barone from uh, Rhode Island, uh, Chip Comstock from Ohio, and um, Brad Pinsky from New York, and then myself, retired deputy fire chief um, from Washington State and an attorney. Um, and so what we try to do is, is um, provide the latest uh, material dealing with legal issues affecting the fire service. And um, what I was going to do today is just sort of do a recap of what we've been talking about, because I was talking to another legal friend of mine down in Arizona and, and talking about a case. And and uh, he says, you know, why is every day Groundhog Day in the fire service? And uh, and I have to agree with him. It's like uh, and even the lawyers, as we get together on our monthly podcast and we talk about uh, issues that we see repetitively. And if you take a look at uh, Kurt Rohn's site, Fire Law Blog, um, you know, there's a lot of material in there that just replicates itself in different uh, parts of the country uh, and, you know, affecting different firefighters and different fire organizations. And so we, uh, we all say, well, geez, you know, should we continue to do this? And, you know, is there a value in it? And I, and I believe that there is, I think part of it is the education part, you know, somebody will get it. I think some departments will say, you know, we heard this or uh, we went to a lecture, went to our conference and we had these attorneys on there. They seem to know what they're talking about. Uh, maybe we ought to take a second look at, uh, at what's happening. And I know that uh, we get phone calls consistently uh, trying to clarify, you know, uh, issues, uh, mostly dealing with people, the personnel uh, issues. And um, and I and I know that when I was uh, kind of moving up through the ranks from a firefighter paramedic to uh, a chief officer, um, I asked one of my mentors, um, you know, what's the biggest, who was the chief? I said, what's the biggest issue that's, you know, facing you and your department uh, today? You know, what should I be looking out for? And he goes, you got to watch out for people. He said, people um, create more um, issues for a fire department than fires do. He said, the, the reality is that fires go out. And he said, people fires never do because they keep rekindling or they'll, you'll have another uh, scenario with, um, um, with somebody in your department or a neighboring department. So, uh, we're sort of in this constant churn of of, uh, of people issues in the fire service. But um, what I'm going to talk about today are like uh, six different items. I think they're sort of the heavy hitters uh, in the fire service. And uh, I think that the first uh, slide here, we talk about uh, these are the things that uh, uh, that we see uh, pretty frequently. Um, and these are some but not all of the legal issues that are facing the fire services today. So a couple of ones I want to point out is that um, there's been a big uptick in uh, firefighter suicides and the interest in suicide prevention and behavioral health. 
And I think it's incumbent on departments to recognize the fact that, you know, we're not our parents or our father's fire service uh, anymore. And, you know, pull up your big boy panties is not a, a good um, response to somebody who suffered um, from some sort of uh, psychological trauma, death of a child, multiple fatalities, uh, personal injuries, uh, those sorts of things. It's more um, trying to keep uh, firefighters uh, in their jobs, um, try to take a look at um, treating mental uh, issues and behavioral health issues the same as would a physical injury. So if I broke my leg, as an example, I'm going to be out for six or eight weeks, right, in a cast. And so you provide me with um, medical leave and, you know, doctor's care and all that other stuff. But behavioral health and mental wellness issues are treated like a pariah in the fire service. And I know that um, being that my wife is Dr. Beth Murphy, and we talk about those issues in the fire service, um, it's slowly becoming more recognized as this is, these are real issues. And we need to treat them as real issues uh, in the fire service, especially as we deal with uh, suicide prevention. Um, another interesting one is the artificial intelligence, the chat GPT issues in writing reports. And one of the uh, my other activities, and I'm sure that my cohorts are about the same, is I, I teach a long-distance learning class uh, down at the University of Florida. And one of the big issues is... Um, are your students writing the papers themselves or, you know, have they used artificial intelligence in order to, um, to, to draft and write and edit their, their responses to their, um, uh, their uh, assignments, which are all in writing on a distance learning program. So there's been some um, emails coming out from the university talking about um, chat GPT and other uh, artificial intelligence writing. One of the, the dangers that we may see, we have not seen yet, is in the uh, generation of EMS reports or fire reports using uh, artificial intelligence to write it. And so, you know, for legal defense, and uh, your writings are the best legal defense you could possibly have, is that um, you need to write your own reports uh, because, you know, a lot of times cases will come up two or three years later. Uh, it's probably a, not a big deal for you uh, at the time of the occurrence. It was significant. You did your documentation, but, you know, two or three years or four years, um, you're doing, you know, you're sitting in a, in a trial on the witness stand and, you know, the, the, the attorneys are going to say, did you write this report? And, you know, how are you going to honestly answer? So you can say, I authored the report. I reviewed the report. Um, but, you know, there's ways to find out whether the report was actually generated by you or some, some artificial issues. So anyway, uh, so we're just not going through all these individuals, but you can just kind of take a look and see what's up um, that are issues. Um, uh, we take a look at, uh, there's an uptick in embezzlement. There's just uh, um, uh, one of the departments, the, um, uh, the treasurer secretary is living high on the hog and found out that he was embezzling money. There's been a big case, I think, in New York somewhere where the, the guy embezzled like $13 million over time, over a long time. And, um, you know, eventually it was caught. So uh, we've taught classes, we've had lectures, um, you know, we talk about trying to prevent theft in your organization, especially um, in the way of, of money. So so anyway, but those are not the ones I'm going to talk about. Those are important. And I think we've talked about them before. Uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, personnel uh, issues and, and dealing with bullying, uh, especially discrimination and harassment and those sorts of things. So um, in 1964, believe it or not, which was a little bit before my time, 
Nah, I'm just kidding. Um, I was in high school in 1964. So uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act was passed. Um, protects employees and job applicants uh, from employment discrimination based on your race, your color, your religion, your sex, uh, national origin, all of those sorts of things that uh, we, we know about, uh, we understand. Um, you know, we're probably not reviewing the federal law on a, on a consistent basis, but Civil Rights Act in 1964 was a seminal uh, decision and a, a uh, provided protection for all of us. Um, you know, older guys, younger guys, women, you know, people that are um, transgender, all that sort of stuff. So uh, this is a cornerstone of, of protection. So it's been about 60 years uh, since the Civil Rights Act was passed. And then, uh, but we still have an incident. As I said before, uh, we discriminate, um, we bully, we harass, we do all a bunch of stuff to our, our, our employees, either as a supervisor or as a fellow uh, firefighter. And, and we, and when we take a look at the litigation that goes on in the fire service, personnel issues are the biggest litigated item in the fire service and pays out the most money. So burning stuff down, you know, property loss, um, you know, motor vehicle accidents, all that other stuff pales in comparison with the, the amount of money that we're paying out on personnel issues like discrimination and, and those sorts of things. And it's pretty easy, I think, for organizations to take a look at what the risk is. And people are a risk, right? So people's interactions and stuff that goes on in the department, I think we need to kind of um, spend a closer t uh, look at what goes on um, and have, you know, effective policies that prevent this with education uh, that goes on. So if you take a look at who is actually suing the fire service, it's, it's us. It's the firefighters that are suing the fire department, not the citizen, you know, the Mrs. Smiths of the world. So we have to be careful about what we're doing in our own houses, right? So a couple of, um, of cases in Lansing, uh, firefighter filed a race discrimination suit in 2019, another one in 2020, and just reading Kurt Verone's blog, he refiled another lawsuit. Um, basically, it's a retaliation and a violation of his First Amendment rights, uh, was awarded initially a million dollars, um, and other, other cases are now pending, and they're going to be high-value now, lots of money out the door, which the department can use in other areas uh, because people aren't paying attention to what's going on in your organization. Another example is a battalion chief with East Haven Fire Department filed suit claiming she was passed over for promotion to assistant chief on account of her gender. Um, that's a hard one, a hard bar to jump over. Like, you know, maybe you're not qualified or maybe the other person is highly qualified and, and uh, maybe it's just not your time. But gender discrimination lawsuits are are horrible, and especially for women in the fire service um, who are, seem to be fighting a consistent uphill battle um, to have a place at the table. And so uh, the way to do it is they, there's a lawsuit going on because the department has basically uh, violated uh, their rights. A couple more uh, cases are two chief officers in Tulsa, fire department filed a suit claiming they were passed over for promotion because of their gender. Another case, right? Uh, two of the lesser qualified male candidates were promoted after testing process was completed. So this is a U.S. district um, court case in Oklahoma, and then it's a violation of Title VII. So you're going to see in a lot of these cases, if you do review case law, Title VII comes up a lot uh, as the basis of a lawsuit. Uh, the U.S. federal prosecutors are suing a whole town in New York, alleging gender discrimination and sexual harassment against a former firefighter, according to a lawsuit filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office 
uh, for the Southern District of New York. Now, when you get the feds coming in wanting to sue you, that's a whole horrible story because not only are they going to take a look at what's going on currently in your organization, they look at everything that's going on in your organization. So in the lawsuit, it alleges that the town of Harrison and this fire department unlawfully discriminated against a female firefighter by creating a hostile work environment, terminating her employment after she reported that a male senior firefighter had harassed and stalked her. So essentially, retaliation complaints are another um, uh, another basis for a lawsuit uh, when people are trying to correct behavior in the organization and they get terminated, which is a retaliation, or they get demoted, or they get uh, put in a horrible station that nobody wants to go to, and so they're going to stick you there. Um, you know, they cut the hours of work. Those are all retaliatory uh, measures against people that are complaining about what's going on in their uh, in their organization. In another um, case in the Justice Department, this announced that it reached a settlement through a consent decree with the city of Orlando, resolving allegations that the city violated, again, Title VII, uh, when it discriminated and retaliated against a female assistant chief uh, with the Orlando Fire Department. The complaint and consent decree resolved allegations that the assistant chief was sexually harassed by the former fire chief and then retaliated against by the fire department leadership for complaining about the discrimination and harassment uh, that she faced. And there are hundreds of these cases, you know, hundreds. If you want to do a, a Google search, they'll just populate your Google screen with um, with cases just like this all over the country. Uh, some of them are old, some of them are new, uh, and we're just going to be seeing these more and more and more until we wise up, I guess, as an organization, as, a, as an institution to uh, to prevent, you know, these sort of activities from from happening. And then one of the interesting ones is, uh, you know, who would ever thought that facial hair would have a federal nexus? Um, these are uh, involving private ambulance companies initially uh, violated federal law by discriminating and retaliating against a nationwide class of applicants and employee first responders with sincerely held religious beliefs and disabilities that required them to wear beards in conflict with the ambulance company's policy about facial hair. Right. So the company with a no facial hair policy hired an EMT who couldn't shave his beard due to his religious beliefs and fired him when he refers, refused to do so. Uh, the aggrieved employee sued the company. Uh, the EEOC has picked this up as a, as a lawsuit and said in statements that no facial hair policy does not permit exemptions for disabilities or religious beliefs which violate federal law. Again, type of litigation also occurred in the public sector as noted at Lindsay versus the city of Philadelphia alleging religious discrimination and retaliation under Title VII and the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act. And so most of your states, if not all states, have these sort of laws that either parallel um, the federal laws or exceed the federal laws to provide more protection for your employees. And in Pennsylvania, uh, theirs is called the Human Human Relations Act. In Washington, we have the same thing, right? So in every state, if you look, at your um, statutes, you'll see that there are protections for um, employees you know, closely following um, Title VII. Uh, both private and public agencies and many other organizations maintaining a no facial hair policy for first responders are arguing that respirators workers must wear won't fit someone with facial hair. Well, OSHA surprisingly said, well, there are uh, facial masks that are acceptable with people that are wearing facial hair. And their uh, powered air purifying respirators, or PAPR, it's an option, according to OSHA and the CDC. 
Um, additionally, the EEOC is representing other workers with a physical impairment known as pseudofolliculitis barbae, right? Pseudofolliculitis barbae. That's, that's quite a mouthful anyway, which is extremely limiting and prevents uh, mostly African Americans, but others similarly affected uh, from grooming and caring for themselves. So they can't shave because they have these uh, bumps that are in the uh, area of shaving, mostly on the neck and on somewhere on the face. Uh, but, um, you know, again, uh, violating federal law um, results in a lawsuit and then some changes in behavior that goes on uh, in your organization. Uh, a couple of um, uh, other um, um, laws on the books that, you know, we, we you guys run into trouble a lot is Equal Pay Act of 1963. Again, protects men and women from sex-based wage discrimination, uh, which we see nationally anyway, mostly in the private sector. Um, but uh, and many of our career departments uh, have labor contracts or agreements um, for equity and pay. We really don't see that very much. But where we do see uh, a big problem is the, under the Fair Labor Standards Act is overtime pay. And so there are a couple of classes out there that I suggest uh, the fire chiefs and their financial managers take to figure out, you know, are we paying our employees correctly? That's the first thing. And then are we paying them, you know, for uh, different activities that they do uh, in their uh, in their job? The other one is American Disabilities Act. Um, and it's sort of on both ends of the hiring uh, chain is you can um, uh, discriminate against somebody who has a disability coming in. And then um, you can disagree, you know, you can, um, um, what's the word I want? You can uh, discriminate, I'm sorry, you can discriminate against somebody who's injured on the job already your, already your employee, and then you're not allowing them to come back to work because of a perceived disability, uh, especially when you misinterpret the NFPA standard on return to work under 1582. So uh, employers need to get smartened up on these sort of dis disability claims. Uh, because, um, again, a number of people have filed lawsuits because they've been prevented from working. And, um, and I think that what we're going to be seeing is, again, more and more of these. Um, there are a couple of more protections, which we're going to talk about later, but the uh, Pregnancy Discrimination <clears throat> Discrimination Act, uh, the Age Discrimination of Employee Act, the ADEA. And then a recent case we just uh, reviewed was the uh, Uniform Services Employment the Reemployment Act under USERA, uh, where you may have a, a veteran, I'm sorry, uh, somebody who's in uh, the reserve forces gets deployed, gone for a period of time. Uh, under USERA, you're required to maintain their jobs. And so when they come back, um, they can be reemployed. And some organizations say, well, we already filled your position. There's no place for you. Or we'll bring you in uh, to the organization, not at the same job and not at the pay same pay scale. And that's illegal. Right, under you, Sarah. So be, be smart about that. Um, a couple of uh, recent Supreme Court cases. Uh, one uh, was the Students for Fair Admission Incorporated versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And if those were basically um, protests against race conscious administrations, no, I'm sorry, admissions, um, uh, claimed or determined to be inherently discriminatory. And how does this affect us as the fire service? And I think the way that I perceive this as affecting us is that if we're trying to get equity in the in your organization, uh, you may still have racial and gender diversity goals, uh, and you and you you got to consult with your attorney to make sure that you're not on the wrong edge of this 
um, sort of process and that, um, that we are hiring practice fit current federal law, even though this affected um, um, institutions of higher learning, uh, we're going to be seeing this, I think, um, uh, in the future in, in public service. So be, just be aware of that. Then the other case uh, is called uh, Groff, G-R-O-F-F versus Joy, the Postmaster General. And so what this was, uh, the decision was the Postal Service must accommodate a rural postman's religious request, not work on Sundays, right? Delivering Amazon products, unless the burden of granting an accommodation will result in substantial increased costs uh, in relation to the conduct of, of this particular business. And so you may have uh, firefighters that may not be able to work on Fridays or Friday nights or Saturdays or Sundays. And so um, how do you make the accommodation uh, to protect the organization um, from a lawsuit? Uh, we need to just take a look at uh, Groff and the, versus DeJoy and see how the Supreme Court essentially analyzed uh, what this person's rights were under religious freedom and what accommodations the uh, organization um, had to make. And I think the what they talked about was um, if you decline an accommodation request after discussion with the employee, you got to thoroughly document the conversation and you got to claim or you have to demonstrate very strongly that there's going to create an undue hardship on your organization to allow people not to work uh, on their chosen religious, um, religious holidays and religious belief system. So, uh, so as a, as a takeaway, I think as leaders, Again, it's your responsibility to prevent discrimination and acts of discrimination. And you got to have enforceable policies with all members of the organization trained on what they are, a reporting mechanism that is confidential and meaningful, and actions that reduce the, the discrimination threat that hangs over uh, all of our organizations. The next uh, big heavy hitter is uh, pregnancy discrimination. And we see uh, as more women enter um, the workforce, especially the fire department, uh, we're seeing fire departments who are just sort of all, all over the place as it deals with how we're going to manage, a, you know, one of our pregnant firefighters. And so it's pretty simple, right? I mean, um, uh, but we seem to make it more difficult, I think, as an organization, uh, because we either discriminate blatantly against um, pregnant firefighters or covertly sort of under the radar. Um, you know, the pregnancy only lasts for a, a certain period of time. Um, maternity leave lasts for a certain period of time. Um, um, you know, moms um, um, will breastfeed if that's their choice for a certain period of time. And so, you know, those are kind of finite end dates, right? So a year, maybe 18 months, everything's over. Get a lawsuit. A lawsuit is going to last like forever, right? Not really forever, but for a long period of time. And you're, it's going to be costly uh, for the organization to defend yourselves, defend your action which is clearly covered under uh, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, right? So again, Title VII, you know, amended by the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, prohibits sex discrimination, including pregnancy discrimination. A couple of cases here, uh, Davie, Florida, an older case, 2014. Uh, three firefighters, including one whose complaint led to an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, filed separate federal lawsuits against the town of Davie, alleging discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. Uh, the Justice Department reached another consent decree with the town of Davie to resolve the allegations that the fire department discriminated against women firefighter paramedics because of their pregnancy and retaliated against another firefighter paramedic because she complained about gender discrimination. 
uh, a consent decree is a uh, decree, not a degree. Consent decree is an agreement or settlement that re- resolves a dispute between two parties without admission of guilt, like in a criminal case, or liability in a civil case. Occasionally, a monitor, either a judge or an attorney, is assigned to oversee uh, the agreement. And this is the case in Davie, Florida, right? Um, and again, according to the complaint, the Davie Fire Department has operated under a policy or practice of denying a pregnant firefighter light duty until the start of her second trimester, regardless of her uh, medical or physical needs. Despite this restriction on the pregnant firefighter's ability to obtain light duty in her first trimester, the fire chief routinely granted other firefighters requests for light duty for non-work-related injuries. So there's a big disparate treatment going on there. Uh, the fire department also required pregnant firefighters to leave active firefighting duty upon the start of their second trimester, regardless of their ability to fulfill the essential functions uh, of their positions. So um, it was found, again, the policies and practice constituted a pattern of practice of discrimination against pregnant female firefighters based on sex and pregnancy. And so the takeaway from that was equal administration of light duty policies and the relationship between the pregnant firefighter and the department is the department is not should not be involved other than to create a policy that allows light duty, a relationship between the pregnant firefighters between her and her physician, right? So they'll make the determination of whether they can work or how long they can work and when she needs to be off of maternity leave. The department, based on these cases, need to stay out of the way and, you know, and have a policy in place and good policies in place in order to accommodate your pregnant firefighters. Another one is a lactation case uh, uh, in the city of Tucson. And this is, again, an older case, not that old, really. Um, so the plaintiff had been an employee of the city of Tucson for quite a long period of time. Uh, she had a child, uh, decided to breastfeed while on maternity leave, and to pump breast milk when she returned to work. Uh, so uh, that all happened. And then upon, and then she pre- loaded, I guess, or come back to work saying, look, I'm going to express breast milk on the job. I need accommodations for that. And so there's rules and regulations on what that looks like. So she returns to work and uh, that the lactation space that was provided by the department would not legally compliant, which has to be safe and secure and clean. Um, and she was in the bathroom on the apparatus bay floor in the host tower, like all over the place. And so she says, this is, this is not right. And it's illegal. Files a lawsuit. Um, wins uh, initially about $3.8 million uh, because the city of Tucson violated uh, basically federal law. Um, and uh, after some, you know, post-trial negotiations, that amount was lowered significantly, but the city of Tucson essentially uh, changed their policies in order to allow um, the legal aspects of uh, providing lactation space for their um, returning um female firefighters who are pregnant, have children. So the take, excuse me, the po- the, po- the takeaway here is the policy changes and some improvements were made only when sued. And so though the smart department, the smart fire chief would kind of pre-think this out and say, look, you know, we have, you know, so-and-so is pregnant and going to come back to work. We need to make reasonable accommodations under the law. You know, how can we accommodate uh, these needs and avoid, um, a lawsuit. So you got to understand the laws that deals with pregnant firefighters and especially those who are lactating and expressing milk uh, while on the job. Uh, in the private sector, Ambulance Company in Spokane, Washington, 
uh, settled a discrimination lawsuit after it refused to provide his pregnant employee a temporary reprieve from heavy duty work, right? So the company paid like $162,000 uh, to a paramedic to resolve that, that lawsuit. Uh, the EOC brought that lawsuit against the private ambulance company. And um, as because the company told her to take unpaid leave uh, for the final days of, of her pregnancy. Additional protections for uh, pregnant firefighters. Um, uh, Joe Biden, our current president, um, uh, initiated and they passed the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, or PWFA, passed uh, last year and just came into effect uh, in June of this year, um, requires covered employees to provide reasonable accommodations for workers' known limitations related to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions, unless the accommodation will cause an undue hardship. Um, and again, um, reasonable accommodation is the key word. Um, you know, how reasonable is it or how unreasonable could it be? And I think the organization needs to have that discussion with uh, their attorney and the, and the firefighter returning to work as to what sort of accommodations um, uh, need, need to be, way, be made. And then the PWFA applies only to accommodation. So it's the, it's accommodation law. Uh, there's other existing laws that help, um, you know, employees in your organization under the EEOC. Um, and again, it makes it illegal to fire or otherwise discriminate against workers on the basis of pregnancy under the EEOC. Um, and then again, the PWFA went into effect on June um, 27th, 2023. Another law that's on the books also is the provide, it's called Providing Urgent Maternal Protections for Nursing Mothers Act, or better known as PUMP. And so that one went into effect in 2022, protecting the rights of nursing mothers to pump uh, while on the job, right? So the bill expands workplace protections for employees with a need to express breast milk and requirements provide certain accommodations. So we need to be thinking about this stuff uh, on a full spectrum if you have female firefighters uh, in your organizations, right? Um, sometimes these accommodations, surprisingly or not, may affect your male firefighters, especially if they take paternity leave. Um, which is allowable under the law to, to care for their newborn. So we need to think about the full spectrum of how, you know, pregnancy affects um, both men and women in your organization and certainly how it affects uh, the organization. Um, the next one is um, LGBTQ, uh, transgender and transitioning firefighters uh, and EMTs, sexual orientation and gender identity. Couple of cases, uh, Georgia fire chief who was terminated after she revealed that despite being born a male, she identified as a female, filed a suit, uh, alleging gender and disability discrimination. Uh, the litigation failed. It's the opine that there was bad lawyering, but we're not going to go there. Uh, but the intent was clear as their desire to be treated, uh, equally. A gay firefighter has filed a lawsuit against FDNY and the city of New York and the lieutenant who serves as the chief diversity officer for alleged harassment and hostility. And then a jury awarded $6.2 million to an LAFD firefighter who was harassed because she's black and a lesbian and brought the lawsuit on the basis of her race and sexual orientation. Um, superiors making derogatory comments about her and then forced her into, you know, compromising um, uh, station assignments, um, uh, exercises, uh, not well, well described, but basically created this sort of hostile and, and disparate workplace for, for, for her. So it um, uh, resulted in a very large award against the fire department. 
So LGBTQIA is the abbreviation for lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, and, and other. So, um, and again, uh, the Supreme Court in 2020 um, passed a landmark civil rights law protecting gay and transgender workers from workplace discrimination. And so the question for the justices when they were making this decision uh, was the meaning of the, or the meaning of the statute under Title VII, which bars employment discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. And they had to decide whether the last prohibition, discrimination because of sex, applies to the many millions of gay and transgender uh, workers. And so gay, uh, gender identity and gender transitioning is a fact of life uh, for those in fire and EMS services. And then um, even the Pope said uh, a couple of years ago, who am I to judge? And so my question to you is, who are you to judge, right? So um, they're, these are your employees. Um, they're going through um, some transitioning issues. They need to be treated with respect uh, and dignity that they deserve. Um, and, you know, there may be a couple of medical issues that may take them off the job for a while. But I think as, again, we need to um, uh, be all embracing and encompassing of, of what's going on um, in, in our fire services. So a couple of arguments here is the moral argument is that no one should be singled out simply for how they exist in the world and for who they have a relationship with. And then everyone deserves to feel safe on the job, both in the fire station and out on the street. And then the legal argument is the same federal laws that protected others since 1964 have been clarified um, in its protections and applications to gay and transgender employees. Under the new law, penalties for such discrimination can reach $300,000 for each offense, depending on the size of the employee or employer. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling further enforces that employers should take precautions to prevent sexual discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and there, unfortunately, are several states with anti-transgender legislation that is making life difficult for you in the fire service and other employers uh, dealing with um, gay and lesbian transitioning um, employees. Uh, have a policy uh, preventing discrimination. Uh, sometimes the DEI, the dis, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training uh, may be very helpful. Um, and then um, some experts believe that just communication training, in addition to DEI training, um, is valuable. It's worth its weight in gold. It's the ability to articulate and con converse and have a conversation about the issue instead of being discriminatory, either overtly or covertly. The next one is um, our social media First Amendment. Um, and the one, the example is pretty horrible example, but a Miami firefighter been terminated for comments made uh, in a group chat relative to the murder of a Miami-Dade police officer. Uh, the nine-year veteran of the department was fired one day after he posted the comment about the death of a Miami police officer with who cares? Another dead cop. Uh, pretty harsh. Uh, there's a lot of worse stuff on Facebook uh, and all our social media, as you can see on the slide. That's there's not only this, but hundreds of more sites that uh, you can access to express your opinion. Um, and there's a term um, called social media uh, assisted career suicide that um, well, I can't remember who coined that phrase, but I like it. And so I'm going to tell you about it is that uh, for those who choose to place content on their social media platforms that violate policy or is globally offensive, 
Um, and so the question is, uh, what rights do you have? And, you know, there's a big discussion now about First Amendment rights. And what are my First Amendment rights? So um, racism uh, was the most common reason people were fired due to their postings. Um, queer phobia, misogyny, workplace conflict, uh, basically offensive conduct such as bad jokes and insensitive posts kind of all led to this sort of um, uh, social media assisted career suicide verbiage. Um, and social media is a double-edged sword. So your department probably has a social media site, uh, either on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the other ones are, um, to advertise the good stuff that you do in your organization. Uh, but again, it can be used to hold people to account for discriminatory views, comments, or actions. And then, you know, the saying is not all speech is free, right? So First Amendment free speech case rights were decided through analysis based on a seminal 1967 case. The 60s were a great time for new laws and legislation, as you can tell, in a case called Pickering versus the Board of Education. And the U.S. Supreme Court adopted a balancing test to evaluate the free speech rights excuse me, of public employees. Uh, the test has two parts. Uh, the threshold part is asked whether the public employee spoke on a matter of public concern, defined as a matter of larger societal significance or importance. And if the public employee was disciplined for expressing that is characterized as more of a private grievance than the, than the employer prevails. So if you're just bitching on your social site, you get terminated for it. Now, was it a grievance or did it have major societal societal implications, right? Made a benefit to the public. Uh, if, however, a public employee spoke on a matter of public concern, then the court proceeds to the second part of the balancing test. Um, under this prong, the court must balance the employer's right, I'm sorry, the employee's right to free speech, the firefighter's right, against the employee's interest in efficient, disruptive, free workplace. And again, um, not all speech is free. Every First Amendment case is, is based on its merits. Uh, we have not seen, you know, sort of this cookie cutter application on every single First Amendment rights case. Um, it's a fact pattern issue. And so depending on what the fact patterns are, it depends on how the, uh, how the court will rule. So it's not a one size uh, fits all. Uh, a couple of cases here is uh, Westmoreland v. Sutherland, an Ohio case. Uh, this one was a firefighter who was on their dive rescue team. The city uh, cut their budget. Some young man, a seven-year-old child drowned. Um, Westmoreland goes to public hearing, basically rips the city council a new one, and it was given a three-day suspension uh, for that and um, uh, and other penalties, right? So he files a lawsuit uh, based on his uh, violation of rights of his free speech. So the question before the court was uh, weighing the employer's interest an expression as a citizen on matters of public concern. So he identified himself as a citizen, although everybody knew he was a firefighter. The government employer's interest in the effectiveness and efficient operation of its workplace. When public employees make statutory statements pursuing to their official job duties, uh, do they have an official uh, First Amendment protection? Was this a grievance or a matter of public concern? Therefore, was his speech protected? So we're going to leave that there, and we'll let the firehouse lawyers figure that out. So was it protected speech or not, right? Another case uh, closer to where I live is uh, called Sprague versus Spokane Valley Fire Department. Uh, and this is a 2018 case, and it deals with First Amendment rights and then uh, religious discrimination. So 
Uh, Washington captain settles uh, for a million bucks on this sort of religious discrimination claim issue, uh, terminated for ignoring orders to stop sending religious-themed emails over the department's email system and bulletin board, uh, filed his claim for violating the First Amendment rights and religious discrimination. And what happened here was the agency had policies, uh, but they opened up their email system uh, for members to communicate easier. Uh, and apparently it was some issue dealing with suicide or behavioral health or mental wellness and that sort of stuff. So he targeted uh, similarly minded or like-minded uh, firefighters and just sent them emails based on you know his religious belief and their religious beliefs as well. And really wasn't out for public discussion. Uh, but anyway, um, the department sort of quashed his um, spirit of, of communication and, and, and he you know, wins this lawsuit. The lessons learned here is um, the agency email system may qualify as a non-public forum if agencies permit any non-agency use by employees. First Amendment protections only protect employees speaking as a private citizen. First Amendment protections only protect employees speaking on issues of public concern. And then an employee discussing religious issues in a private capacity does not raise the Establishment Clause issues, which is the separation of church and state. Uh, the Sprague decision can impact the Public Records Act. So if somebody's going in and asking for emails, uh, are these uh, withheld or, or uh, subject to non-disclosures? Um, you know, other sort of legal mumbo jumbo, making it difficult for you to comply with a public records request. And again, as an employer, you want to use caution when imposing any contact based restrictions on employees speech. The next one uh, has sort of an interesting nexus to it. Um, so this one is Vanessa Bryant sues the Los Angeles County in September 2020. Uh, accusing the sheriff and fire department of workers of improperly taking and handling photos of human re remains from the crash that killed her husband and her 13-year-old daughter, uh, settles for $28 million. Uh, there's a major policy revision uh, at every level. And then Governor uh, Gavin Newsom signed into law uh, uh, legislation that makes it illegal for first responders to take unauthorized pictures of people killed at the scene of accidents or a crime. And that replicates um, some of the um, restrictions we see on the East Coast in four or five states there, uh, restricting and making it a crime uh, to take pictures and distribute pictures of, of deceased or uh, people who have been in uh, accidents. So it sort of brings up this question of um, cameras on EMS or fire personnel. Is it a good idea um, when you're on an EMS call, does it violate patients' rights when you have a like a body camera on? And then the whole question of storing and retrieving data um, comes into play about security um, and destru destruction and distribution. So where does it go? Um, you know, can it be uh, requested in, in a trial? Uh, so there's you know, a lot of things I think your organization needs to go through uh, before we start to put uh, cameras on our firefighters. And I know that we've had uh, helmet cameras on. Uh, the... the plane crash in San Francisco probably 10 years ago or eight years ago uh, when one of the battalion chiefs had a, a helmet camera on and recorded uh, one of the uh, passengers getting run over by a, um, a fire apparatus, uh, created a huge hubbub for the city of San Francisco in the fact that, you know, this battalion chief disseminated uh, these videos out to news media, creating a real problem not only for the family, of the deceased victim, but for the fire department and the fire chief at the time. So 
I think we need to make sure that why we put cameras on people are on there for a good reason. And there, and there are good reasons. I think that, you know, there's a lot of training value in being able to see what's going on at a, at a scene. Um, you know, certainly the media is there, so they have certain obligations and, um, you know, we, and certain restrictions, right? So media can uh, record it from a public place. But if, if you have a closed scene or in the back of your aid car or in somebody's house, there's, you know, media doesn't get in there. So the question is, why are we videotaping in somebody's house or in the back of an aid car? That's a question that your organization is going to have to ask. And I believe that you need to kind of get with your attorney on those sorts of things about it. The other one is uh, cameras in the fire station. And so it's the same analysis. Why, where, how, what do you do with the data? Um, and, and it's created some problems for uh, one fire department in particular in uh, Tillamook, Oregon. So it starts with a male firefighter urinating outside a fire station in the presence of a female being sus- and being suspended, right? And he's placed again or back on probation. About a month later, he apparently enters the fire station and according to two of the lawsuits, engaged in a lewd act on the apparatus bay. So, so undescribed, we just won't talk about that. Uh, the act is caught on a camera placed there by a mechanic because somebody was stealing his tools. According to the chief, the mechanic requested permission, but you can only photograph the entry door. And so what happened was the mechanic was photographing the entire apparatus floor, catches this guy doing lewd acts. And then um, he, the, so that firefighter um, committing the lewd acts is the same guy peeing on the side of the building, um, resigns, right? So despite directions from the fire chief, the videotape gets shared. Uh, which raises concern about a possible violation of, of the state of Oregon's revenge porn law. Uh, two firefighters of discipline ultimately terminated for their role in sharing the video. They later sue the fire department and the fire chief, claiming violation of their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, as well as retaliation. The female who witnessed the urinating uh, files a claim against the department as well, and all three of them are using the same law firm somewhere in Oregon. So is there a conflict of interest? Probably not from the legal side. Uh, one of the disciplined firefighters who sued the department is also the mayor of the community, and he decides that he will run for the fire district board and gets elected. And so he ran unopposed. And that prompts the fire chief to resign. And then the original firefighter who was filmed gets the fire chief's job in another local department. So, you know, you can't make this stuff up. And it actually happens out there. It puts, you know, for the lawyers, we're all smiling. Um, cause it's almost like a lawyer's right to work activity. Uh, but anyway, uh, use your cameras judiciously. Make sure you have good policies in place and then enforce that policy. So, um, and finally, uh, we're going to talk about uh, documentation, uh, liability, refusal of care. Uh, and again, documentation is your best recall memory in any event. Uh, failure to document creates legal jeopardy. Uh, you want to document um, accurately what happened on location. Uh, you know, the old saying that we've heard for 100 years is if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. And so make sure that you do the documentation properly. Uh, sometimes uh, documentation of all events are required by either law or policy. So EMS uh, agencies, especially the state organizations, want you to document, right? And they train you how to document. Uh, we need to make sure that we do do the documentation. And then policy as well. Policy in many forms will say, thou shalt document, you know, every call that we go on. Uh, release or destruction is guided by policy and state law. 
So take a look at your statutes and as to how long you keep your records, how you dispose of your records, both paper and electronic, and kind of put you through a guide uh, or a, path, a um, pathway in order to properly dispose of records. And then improper release may cause litigation under the current HIPAA law um, and guidelines. And so uh, we're seeing a lot more because uh, the people that are doing the, the HIP, enforcing the HIPAA laws are becoming uh, way more uh, astute and skilled in um, filing lawsuits against organizations, especially large organizations. But, you know, if you're in a small department, certainly if there's improper release uh, without, you know, you know, the, the right forms, uh, the necessary signatures, uh, you could be charged with a HIPAA violation. So be very, uh, very careful about that. Uh, one case I like uh, is an old case, like it's uh, 1992, which is, but it still has relevance, I think, to what we're talking about today. It's called Pavlov, P-A-V-L-O-V versus Community Emergency Medical Services. And making a long story short, um, the guy was at, uh, com- he was company in somebody's house, a um, little bit of alcohol, a little bit of swimming, uh, became short of breath um, with chest pain. And so they called EMS, EMS shows up. Um, put him on oxygen, did an EKG. Uh, the EKG showed normal sinus, right? So they contacted base station. Um, the guy uh, was, wanted to take himself and he didn't want to go in by, by, by the paramedics or EMTs. Um, they basically, um, uh, the EMT said he needs to see a doctor, right? Paramedics said the same thing. Um, and so his wife indicated that uh, uh, they will take him to the hospital. Um, they signed a release form, right, with the wife as the witness. And so part of this sort of little lecture here is make sure that you get a signed release form if you're, you know, leaving a patient at home or they refuse care or they're going to take themselves in. Uh, and then again, and then so the paramedics and everybody left, all the emergency responders took off. Uh, the wife goes out, uh, go get something, getting ready to go to the hospital, comes back in the room. Her husband's in cardiac arrest at this time. And so they call back EMS, and uh, he ends up expiring at the hospital. And then the wife files a, uh, a lawsuit right against the organization. So the plaintiff, who's the wife, uh, claimed negligence on behalf of the responding paramedics after a family member died. Um, following an assessment and subsequent refusal of care and transport, and then the court found that the EMS provider was not guilty of negligence. And that their assessment and encouragement of the patient to be transported met the expected standard of care. Now, this is like over and above uh, a lot of the immunities that we have uh, in our service as EMS providers. So this is like, you know, the frosting on the cake that they've met the standard of care. And so that prevented them from being successfully sued, although they had to, um, you know, obviously defend themselves. And so thorough patient evaluation with documentation including a signed release, was a major contributing factor in the summary decision favoring defendant EMS personnel. So the lessons learned here is have a policy on documentation, uh, have a policy on refusals. And I know that many of us are on electronic um, um, PCRs or EMRs, you know, the electronic medical records. Um, in there is a release form. Uh, make sure that people uh, understand what they're signing Right. So you may have to read it to them. If uh, you have a patient that English is not their is their second language, you may need to get an interpreter uh, to interpret the provisions of what a release actually says before they sign it, because it has to be uh, basically um, 
uh, placed in a, um, you know, did you know what you were signing? And so um, I did an article on uh, uh, liability waivers, you know, right, writing on the fire truck. Most people don't even read it. They just sign it thinking that they're going to be protected and they're not. So most, a lot of people will just read the sign, read, not read and sign the refusal. So make sure they know uh, what it is, you know, cause it's like informed consent, informed consent. So they got to understand what they're signing. Um, enforce the policies, ensure that your responders can actually write a good report. Um, many times um, in my documentation class, I talk about the ability to write um, correctly. So, you know, you don't have to write, I always tell people, you don't have to write war and peace when you're doing an EMS narrative. You want the facts, right? The who, what, what, where, and how, uh, what did you do? What did you see? How did you treat the patient? What happened to the patient? You know, those, those sort of things. Um, and so that's the basic stuff. And so take a look at what they're writing too. You can do that in your QA, QI sessions um, and take a look at errors in documentation and go back, you know, to the author and say, look, you know, on this patient, uh, you wrote it this, this way. way. It should have been written this way in order to, you know, make it clear. So use those opportunities to re- read and review um, um, your fire paramedics and EMTs, their documentation. And even on uh, um, fires, that's important that there's a narrative there. I mean, that could be an insurance issue, could be an investigation issue. There's a civilian fatality or a firefighter fatality. Those are going to be very, very important that accurate writing uh, is part of your um, uh, daily activity. So um, make sure that your, uh, your organization, if your fire EMS people um, have a hard time writing, maybe well worth the time to invest in somebody to come in and help them. Uh, teach even your local community college or high school uh, may have those um, resources available. So, in closing, uh, I just want to thank you for what you guys are doing. Um, I know that it, you know we're in a sort of a legally challenging environment, um, pretty much from from everywhere. And I and I, you know, if I can channel my fellow attorneys, um, we're here to take questions. We're here to answer your questions. Uh, We educate. Um, We'll come out to your department and teach you whatever you need to be taught in order to provide a legally safe workplace for your your firefighters, EMTs, your volunteers, uh, your chiefs, chief officers, your administrative staff. I mean, everybody in your organization is affected by, um, you know, legal activity or illegal activity. And I just want to say that, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Uh, the nation's fire service is the best in the world. <clears throat> and we try to make you uh, legally compliant and legally safe. So we maintain that reputation and image um, to our uh, fellow firefighters and our, and our community. So without further ado, I'd like to um, thank uh, fire engineering for uh, hosting these things. Um, unfortunately, my cohorts weren't here today, but they're probably having a good time somewhere else. And, uh, and it's an honor to be here to present you with this material. So without further ado, goodbye and be safe.